0: this Reed, and um, as well as Abalone Edwards, uh, Sierra Contamanchi, who's who I played for you earlier. We heard her music, and a, quite a number of other people.
1: Well, you missed the part about
2: be a chum.
0: Be a chum? What the heck is that's that? That's
2: a dog oh, salmon.
0: Be a chum. I get it. Jay is really good like that. That's farmed up. No, that's great. It's really good.
1: you got snaggle teeth, you're a chum.
0: Yeah, yes, be a chum. Come to this Musqueam Festival where you can see all kinds of entertainment from 11 o'clock. And then from 3 o'clock till 5, there's going to be a wild salmon open mic for everybody to step up and be who you are and uh, let us all share it in this celebration. Anything else, Woody?
1: No, I guess no? not. The clock just about run out here oh,
0: on
3: us. okay. Here we go. Life not caring what other people say. I'ma do what's right, doing it my way. I'ma live my
4: life not caring what other people say. I'ma do what's right, doing it my way. Yo, 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 yo check, check it. check oh, oh, oh. The violence got me fired up The siren's what I'm tired of All I want is silence Instead of hearing
3: Cups and fire trucks Living this life why'd, why'd you eat the whole thing?
5: Because
3: You snuck in my room And got them And shut the door Because I told you Not to eat anymore Why'd you eat so many?
5: I love m M&M? and
3: I know you love M&M's But now you're going to Have a tummy ache
5: No I'm not
3: <laughs> Yeah, you are. When I have a rumbly in my tummy, the only thing that makes me feel better is listening to CITR 101.9 FM.
2: Hi, everybody. This is Fred Penner, and you are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. <laughs>
5: Good evening, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 5th, and this is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9. It is a packed show with lots of contributors, and I'm very excited to get started on this fine, fine evening. listening to the Arts Report on your radio dial or your internet dial, your mobile player dial. There's so many dials that you could be listening to us, but it's CITR 101.9. And as I said, we have a super pack show for today. And so I thought that we would jump right into it with a new contributor, Lauren. Lauren, welcome to the show. Lauren Thanks, is Megan. Lauren's a UBC alum. And she uh, is a freelance dramaturgist. And where did you have a
6: a degree in dramaturgy? I have a master's in dramaturgy from the University of Ottawa.
5: So uh, very, very overqualified for the Arts (laughs) Award, but that's what we like. I mean, we're all overqualified here. Uh, And so I thought, why not send Lauren to a play that's happening right now, and she can use her dramaturgical skills to review one of our, our support's apparently favorite actors who keep showing up here,
6: Ryan Beale in The Santa Land Diaries. And uh, Lauren, please tell us what you thought. So Santa Land is the anti-holiday destination of the Vancouver theater season. Fans of David Sedaris might be surprised by the Arts Club Theatre's production of The Santaland Diaries, but fans of Vancouver actor Ryan Beals certainly won't be. Don't go to the show expecting the monotone, rye delivery of a David Sedaris reading. This performance is fast, sweaty, and loud. Beal's vocal acrobatics and priceless expressions keep the story animated throughout. And under the direction of another Vancouver favorite, John Murphy, Beale maneuvers around the small stage, keeping the audience wrapped with attention for 75 consecutive minutes. The 30-something-year-old male, known to us only as Snowball, the elf, enters in a woolly sweater and corduroy pants, which give the first part of the show the feeling of Woody Allen's New York. You will see him in an elf suit before the night is over, an image which is well worth the ticket price on its own. Snowball is neurotic and depressed, but like the author Sideris, deeply witty and uncompromising in his stark observations of human behavior. The character relays his struggles with finding work in New York City after a recession, including a horrendous interview where he was one of hundreds lining up for an entry-level job at UPS. This is the kind of humiliating experience most recent graduates and members of the boomerang generation can relate to. Beale's character finally lands a job as an elf at Macy's department store, but reality is pretty dismal next to the shiny city of dreams he imagines, where he rubs elbows with soap stars and becomes their favorite writer. These dreams come to life on stage thanks to the versatile set and lighting by Ted Roberts. Although parts of the set were too clunky for Beale to handle alone, it was versatile, evoking everything from a Macy's classroom to a posh lounge to the gentle beating of the good Santa's heart. The design was completed with fitting projections by Candelario Andrade, stellar costuming by Sidney Kavanaugh, ironic song choices and amusing sound effects by William Moisey, and a seamlessly managed stage by Peter Jotkiss. Unlike David Sedaris's stories, which, though they provide a laugh, also frequently provoke readers to take a hard look at themselves, this production would rather take a look down its nose at everyone else, and god help you if you resemble one of the jerks Beale's character meets at Macy's. This production exaggerates the original writing's depiction of the underbelly of the holiday season, but it also includes extra tenderness. One of my favourite moments was the tale of the good Santa, who managed to share true kindness and holiday spirit with each of the families who visited him, eschewing chatter about gifts and even skipping the standard photograph procedure while reminding his visitors of their bond to one another and celebrating the too-often-ignored part of the holidays, time with family. Tender moments aside, this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the politically correct. The rest of us will be having a good time laughing along with the best one-man anti-Christmas show in Vancouver this season. The Santaland Diaries' True Confessions of an Elf, based on the writing of David Sedaris, adapted by Joe Mantello and starring Ryan Beal, plays at the review stage on Granville Island until December 29th.
5: Thank you very much for that very lovely and uh, well-written review. Um, Now, because it's so well written, what we're going to be doing is posting that uh, an updated version on CITR.ca. So if you missed anything, you'll be able to pop in and uh, you'll be able to check that out before the run ends at the Arts Club Theater uh, in December 15th. Thank you very oh, much. It's
6: for... actually extended to the 29th. So yes, you have it until is. The 29th, I knew that. Everybody.
5: Yeah, there you go. Um, and in the background, there we had "I'll Be Home for Christmas" and "Come All Ye Faithful." Uh, Tony Bennett. And so uh, it sounds like there's there's quite the mall aspect. You'll you'll be well well within the mall. Um, <laughs> but if you haven't heard Christmas music on your uh, trip to the mall or the grocery store lately, then good for you because it's happened to me already. <laughs> thank you so much lauren okay thanks, Megan. and we are going to uh keep moving right along and we will be uh talking to tobias wagner now last night i was lucky enough to uh, check out the cult premiere of leo now uh leo is a gravity defying literally show from the mind and body of Tobias Wagner and you can check out a video online at citr.ca and on facebook.com uh where uh you see a little tidbits and it's a man it's a box it's a video and With this projection screen and the video itself, uh, alongside the physical space, he seems to defy gravity. And at first, this unnamed man, we assume Leo, uh, is bemused and excited by his new world that defies gravity, but soon His imagination runs amok and he's actually quite terrified of where he is trapped. But all ends well, so don't worry. Um, This started out as a a clowning acrobatics piece and then was developed by the director into a hour-length evening of, uh, well, it's hard to describe. Why don't we let Tobias tell us a little bit more about where he went with Leo? traveled all over the world with this show. It, it, how how was last night in the scheme of things?
2: Well, it's pretty obvious that last night for a premiere uh, was a pretty responsive um, audience, which I hoped for in this beautiful city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes uh, premiere audiences have a tendency to be a little bit more reserved because it's all guests and they're all invited. and So sometimes it's a little bit more buckled up, but Last night was really fun, and people were, I I felt like I had them after the first minute already, which is a pleasure then for me to keep going.
5: One of the things that I found really delightful, especially in the first section, which was kind of you exploring the space and and delighting in the things that you suddenly, in the the piece, could Mm -hmm. do, Um, and there was this child in the balcony above me, I don't know if you could hear it, but was just squealing with delight, just yeah. loved it. Tell me what that kind of, that child laughing, that child enjoying uh, your your work, what that means to you.
2: Often the children, they respond very immediate to what they see, and they don't care about the other people in the room, so they, they are often, they work like keys to open the other audience members' hearts. Even though I would say it, it's not a pure humorous show, I mean, it has a very funny beginning, and then in many scenes there is a lot of humor involved but the end is you know we we sort of go down another road with the ending it becomes a little dramatic in my eyes.
5: it seems like all of the fun and all of the imagination of the piece kind of comes crashing down on mm. you or, or mm. this this character and uh you know there's an overwhelming and kind of the the reality of the situation of being in this space and not being able to get out or escape, yeah. I don't know what word you would use, um, kind of s- becomes, it becomes a little dark. Uh, tell me a little bit about those kind of layers.
2: Well, we, we didn't want to keep it a, a, a simple one-layer show actually, and uh, since we our obje- objective was to create an, a whole evening-filling show, we were kind of looking for different colors also to the different scenes. And so it's, it's really a, a hybrid, which makes the audience travel along through different states of, of emotions and mind of the principal character who uh, discovers a lot of talents that he has and, and he has a lot of joy exploring his little space but then at one point he loses track of what he created and actually it becomes a little bit overwhelming to him and um, that's yeah, that's the tipping point also in the show where he decides to head on to other shores, and, and yeah, look out for another life, knowing what he knows now about himself, also, he wants to leave this box, which is, in a way, a metaphor for his own personality, you know, the, the one that we discover in the beginning of the piece, of the pretty average uh, man, actually, who, who, yeah, who witnesses a, a special gravity day, a special gravity period, and, yeah, I mean, all his valors and all all what he thought was working and true in his life beforehand suddenly is put into question and and he has to find a way and and to deal with this new situation and yeah and in the end i mean he's desperate to to leave the space and start over again
5: how autobiographical is is that story
2: um i think it's it's rather universal i mean there's certainly some aspects of it but i didn't take my own life as a role model for this piece Uh, it's it's i think it's universal in the way that everybody knows sometimes the feeling of you know today i would like to leave myself at home and 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 go out as somebody else (laughs) (laughs) um or also i mean yeah sometimes i think everybody knows that you feel restricted in your own life uh, maybe by the society also that surrounds you and, and all the um, obligations that you feel, be it a work life or a family or whatever and that's maybe the, the, the strongest power of this piece that everybody can project himself somehow and, and associate with this character and, and feel feel along. It's actually the, the director, Danielle Briere from Quebec, who really took care um, about the storyline that, that the character experiences during this 65-minute show. I'm more the creator of, of the movement and stuff like that but he was making sure that it's, it's a little story to be understood by the, by the audience. My favorite scene in, in the piece is clearly the chalk scene where the character finds a piece of chalk and creates himself at home in this naked box actually. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a delight for me every night to play it. Uh, I think we, 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 we've been fooling around with real chairs and a table and attach them to the to the fictionary the fiction floor (laughs) and then at some point we we thought ah this is actually too complicated and who's going to bring those props in and how are they going to disappear because we don't want them to be there all the time and then somebody had this idea i really can't remember who it was but said you know what, what if we drew those And I said, yeah, I mean, I have drawing skills from back in the days when I was a kid. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, and then it sort of, yeah, it flows out of your hand somehow once you know what the objective is.
5: Developing this show and going through this process, what boxes did you break out of that you were (laughs) in before?
2: It's been a very big challenge to, yeah, how how would you say it? I mean, to full be able to trust yourself in advance to fulfill this 65 minute piece and uh, now that i've done it i've certainly gained in the way i believe in my abilities now and the way i I appreciate such challenges that's certainly a box that i just like the character didn't know before i i I was going to be capable in that way that's for sure but sometimes you know somebody from the light desk would come and say oh did you see we, we you know we lost the light during the show it it went down and i'm i'm going oh really i didn't <laughs> i didn't realize cuz i i really dive into this character for f- throughout the show and i'm really with him and i enjoy that that very much so i don't have the time and the space in my brain to to focus on on what's going to happen on the screen or If the lights are all working or if the sound is maybe too loud or not it's also pretty fascinating to to be in a tunnel just me and the audience
5: and that was Tobias thank you very very much I am I'm gonna say that I really really enjoyed uh, his the the 15 to 25 minutes at the beginning that was his exploration of the space this was the kernel of the idea that leo's based on and that the 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 second company is taking off with and after uh, and then there was uh, dancing which may or may not fit within that that gem of the idea originally he's dancing to this music out of his magic Uh, suitcase Mary Poppins or Pulp Fiction depending on on which reference you enjoy and uh, I really enjoyed how he moved around the space now the chalk drawing a room and then interacting with it was also really delightful but then there was this part where this animation comes onto the screen and while I loved the idea and I also loved the end uh, about 5 or 10-15 minutes while he is truly starting to panic and starting to it gets dark and and he's he's flying around the room and they're doing this doubling with the the video imagery and it's it's quite spooky and interesting but both of these sections go on for quite a long time and i feel and i and i really understand now why because those were director driven spaces not movement driven spaces and i think you can tell that being said the animation was really interesting how he interacted with it um he has to really know his body in space in order to work with the animation. But I believe there may have been a more subtle or more analog way to do that that may have been a little less distracting, because I felt like he didn't need it. He's a, an amazing mover, and was able to showcase the emotions of uh, in this kind of uh, mime way that uh, he uses throughout the show, and a little bit a little bit of vocalization. So I, I very much enjoyed Leo. Uh, the audience loved it. They were thrilled. I heard nothing but good things. And, and I have to say that child laughing really, really brought the poignancy and, the, and the, the joy of the piece home for me. But I do feel like ultimately his movements and his idea were the most successful part of Leo. So uh, Tobias, keep, keep creating and uh, keep keeping it dance and, and movement rather centered. We're going to take a break. And when we return, we will be uh, speaking to Emma, our arts reporter. And a, she will be talking to Sal Ferreras from Sticks and Skins. Leo will be playing at the CULCH uh, through December 9th. I'll double check on that for you. Um, you can check it out online. Um, there's also a really great... Um, quick interview with the Post and Courier with Tobias as well and you can learn a little bit more about that if you just google uh, leopostandcourier.com hey,
2: I'm sick and tired of hearing your band playing on and on and on gosh so loud
7: man I wish we had a safe place to play music. Yeah, and shows too. The Safe Amplification Site Society is a non-profit group dedicated to establishing a legal, affordable, all-ages venue for music and arts in Vancouver. For more information or to get involved, check out (laughs) www.safeamp.org.
6: On Friday, December 14th, the Holiday Hustle begins with the second annual benefit for the W2 Community Media Arts Society. Over three floors of performances, including the Librarian vs. Self-Evident, Mandai, Vendettas, Bastet, Cherchez La Femme, and many more. Check Holiday Hustle 2 on eventbrite.ca for special deals, or grab tickets at W2, Beach Street, Zulu, High Life, and Red Cat.
5: And we are back, and yes, December 4th to 15th for Leo, and special talkbacks on the 5th, tonight, the 6th, and the 11th. And uh, Tobias is from uh, Berlin, and the production company is Circle of Eleven. And he says uh, also, uh, not in the interview, but he was talking to me a little bit about how traveling all over the world is uh, one of the most amazing benefits of this show. So thank you again to Tobias and to The Cult for having us. Okay, Emma.
0: Oh, hey.
5: Hey. Hello. Hello, hello. Hey, there we go. There we go. Emma, you you saw uh, an exciting musical, cultural musical presentation uh, last Thursday. Tell us a little bit about it. Um,
0: I, oh, yeah, it was Thursday, not Wednesday. All right, it was last Thursday. I went with my friend Brad from CITR to a combined music and dance performance called Sticks and Skins presented through the Scotiabank Noon Hour Dance Series. Sticks and Skins is an ensemble of percussionists whose members change sometimes, but is corely comprised of Sambada, a Cuban-Brazilian music collective, a Zume Taiko, a contemporary Japanese taiko drumming group, a South Asian Arts, a Bangra collective, and not present, but I believe fundamental to the group, is its uh, West Coast First Nations contributor, who's also a drummer, but he was busy that day. I thought the show was fun. It was a very short presentation. The only dancing part was some Bhangra, and for those of you who don't know, Bhangra was originally the harvest dance of the Punjab region that was divided in the partition. After 1947, Bhangra left the region and now represents a fraction of the diaspora of that area. Because it was typically a uh, harvest dance, it's super happy, and because it's moved all over the world, it's incorporated many elements outside of its original self. The bongo dance performed by Sticks and Skins was more traditional than not, and it was awesome. It was just one guy, and he was doing it by himself, and he was super tight. Uh, Sticks and Skins tries to find commonalities and new directions through the fusion of their respective music. It was kind of cool, uh, in my opinion. I w- didn't think it was the most visionary, and I feel there was a lack of synthesis, which could have been confirmed, uh, which was confirmed by the shortness of the performance. That being said, all the performers were fun to watch, and I would be interested in checking them out again, maybe separately. I'm not opposed to fusion music, but that wasn't my favorite. Uh, afterwards, or a day later, I went to Sal Ferreres' office, and he works uh, high-level administration at VCC. Uh, Sal brought the troupe together, I believe at the request of the Olympic Committee, although it was definitely the Olympics, because he was working for them at the time. While I'm not a fan of the Olympics, I chose not to ask him too much about it, and to ask him just about the music. Here's my interview.
1: I get hired to produce some big shows for, like, big conventions when they come here, and Mm. and sometimes the shows have gone from, the most recent one was, there was only uh, eight of us, to uh, 150.
0: 150 members? 150 drummers. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, so
1: it's but those are huge huge shows. I mean, they're like rock shows.
0: Do you like hype music? It's exciting music. Yeah, Yeah.
1: absolutely. I mean that's I'll go back with hype music Mm -hmm. because hype music has several antecedents with drumming one of the most important things is that you connect and Almost everybody can play some kind of drum sometime. So that's good. So everybody that's in the audience Knows that they're looking at you on stage and they said, Hey, you know what? I can do some of that. <laughs> and that makes that connects them. Yeah. And so you responding to that and you responding and people responding to the actual physical sensation of either drumming or listening to drumming, it's a visceral experience that no doubt totally, I mean, the shamans have known that forever, the witch doctors have known that forever. That's why they use the drums, that's why we use them. We just, it's just a different technique.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's cool because like the average age of the like noon hour, like series audience is like usually sixty. And, like they got, they were pretty excited. I could tell. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, they do. Yeah,
0: and it's cool because it was like more traditional bongra too. It wasn't like bongra fusion, which I'm like, it's totally cool. But like he, was like doing like, straight traditional. The, that's
1: right. That's right. And in really fact, though, what we do show every May with with the bhangra festival called repercussion and so we bring it's it's a lot of bhangra with other stuff added to it which is sometimes DJ sometimes a tabla player sometimes a you know afro-cuban player
0: do you personally get hyphy that's like a word for getting hype
1: you know, you don't have to translate all these terms because I work in a post-secondary institution. I'm surrounded <laughs> by people just like you. <laughs> do I personally get? Yeah. You bet I do. Cool. All the time, all, right. all the time. In fact, you know, working in this job, it, I actually have to keep a lid on it because, you know, there's a corporate side and then there's, but. Uh, but.
0: Uh, why'd you pick Sambada?
1: Sambada, well, first I love Paul. He's like Mr. Good Paul. Vibe. <laughs> he, he just has the most beautiful vibe as a person.
0: He's a bongo player?
1: Yep and uh, he's, uh, he's very good mm-hmm. and he's very good in a number of styles yeah there's you know I have a reputation here I can work with anybody I want to but I only want to work with the people that I like to work with and people that are good human beings who have compassion and are passionate about their music but also know that know that what we have is a gift that you have to give forward
0: sweet I just watched uh, the fella Cootie documentary last night and it was like it was he's like Trippiest character. He's like, like those of you who are, like blessed with like the gift of music. Like you're kings and you have to be a king about it. You should. W- um. Is there, you know, is there a commentary? Is there anything that like besides just like, you know, promoting traditional and like new fusion music? Is there like anything that sticks and skins is trying to like say? Like, is there a message?
1: Um, there's a message in the music. And that is that we are a different reality in Canada now. This is what I always call post fusion, post post melting pot, post mosaic. Hey, we're
0: the fruit cake. America's the melting pot.
1: <laughs> we're the fruit cake. I haven't heard that one. I Really? Say. That's yeah. like, it's yeah. like
0: mom sees.
1: Wow. Well it's uh, the the message is that Vancouver musical culture I mean we've been multicultural forever. But we, since the 80s, early 90s, we moved beyond the novelty of mixing, all that stuff that they used to call East is West or East meets West, whatever. If I ever hear that term again, I'll think I'm going to get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we move way beyond that to create something that's uniquely ours. And Sticks and Skins is a perfect example of that. Cool. The band Delhi to Dublin, that's a perfect example of that. The, we We don't think of ourselves in any sort of self-conscious manner these are the people on the street, and this is the music that we play. It happens to come from different places, but it's a new generation of music.
0: Uh, what place does traditional music have in the lives of people of Vancouver and Canada? Not that like any one person could really answer that question, but like probably could answer better than
5: a lot of people.
1: Well, it, traditional music uh, for me, and you know, I can think of. Ooh. I have a traditional music from the Caribbean. That's because that's where I come from. And many people here in in Vancouver wouldn't have any reason to relate to that, but I use the music as a bridge to who I am, and through me to what my culture is. Um, For the individual that performs the traditional music, it's a it's a serious link with your heritage um, that your existence in sort of a metro area doesn't allow you to exercise. It's it's like why people you know go to church. Uh, you go because it, it, there's a part of you that is a, a set of values that are common to all people but that have, are nuanced in a certain type of expression. It could be in a language, in a, poetry, uh, a poetic style, in a song style, or in a rhythmic style. And so to play that traditional music or to reinforce that traditional music is to reinforce your own values and to remember who you are and if you know who you are, then you know what you can give. And if you give, then we're all richer for it.
5: And thank you very much to Sal. Uh, that jerking and herking that you heard was uh, our program. It was not the work of our arts reporter, Emma. So sorry about that at home. Uh, let me know if you would like to hear the interview uninterrupted Uh Hopefully, it doesn't podcast like that, but if it does, I can always send you the MP3 because that is modern technology and that's what we love about it. Uh, Emma, is there anything else you'd like to add about what you enjoyed or liked about the event? Mm. Nope. All right. Well, let's keep going. Um, And thank you very much, Emma, for letting us into the world of Bonger Fusion. those are the type of events uh, around Vancouver that are always great in terms of just free, fun events. Um, but yeah, sometimes sometimes you want to get a little deeper into the theoretics behind what's happening. Now, one of the events that's coming up that you may have seen around town uh, via poster, uh, also a very modern technology, is the upcoming production of Don Juan, directed by John Wright, with uh, collaborating with... Uh, Don Wright for Blackbird Theatre collaborating with Access Theatre. And in a lead-up event next week, December 11th, 7pm, a free event at the Vancouver Public Library called Masks, Mischief and Moliere. Uh, they'll be discussing Commedia dell'arte, a form of street theatre that evolved in 16th century Italy. They'll be showing, and you'll get to play with, masks that were an integral part of Commedia del arte. And they will also be presenting on how this comedic style is integrated into the darker themes of Don Juan. So, uh, one of our uh, arts reporters, Sarah Lapsley, uh, who you heard last week talking about uh, the State of Mind California exhibition. She uh, talked a little bit to Wayne Specht from Axis Theatre about this event and how it ties into Don Juan. So the event is on next Tuesday, December 11th, and the production of Don Juan runs from December 26th to January 26th at the East Van Cultural Centre. Don Juan is an iconic character. Um, Obviously, he is the great seducer. And uh, I know Sarah and... um, Hopefully, uh, we'll be seeing Don Juan and can tell us a little bit more about uh, him as a character in a production. And uh, Matthew will be by next week to tell us how the Commedia dell'arte event went. But for now, let's listen to Wayne Specht from Axis Theatre talking uh, to the lovely Sarah Lapsley.
4: So it's how the Commedia dell'arte component are fitting within this play is um, not only our challenge but our hope to succeed in making that integration successful.
3: So what is Commedia dell'arte?
4: Commedia dell'arte? Um, or Comedia, it's got many names. Uh, and that's an art form that uh, was created in the 16th century in, in Italy uh, and it came about uh, as the street performers, strolling actors, performers, acrobats, and the like, uh, were looking for a way where they could express themselves about uh, the political environment, the medical environment, or any controversial issues of the time uh, in a way where they could be protected through the use of the masks and that way, uh, if need be, uh, escape prosecution for maybe making something just a little bit... Too close to the bone for the for the local um, political hierarchy. That was kind of the roots of it. But it, for its theatricalness, uh, it was also that way. Um, you know, they certainly didn't have lighting and those kinds of things when they're performing out in the streets. So they, they wanted to, to create a style or a, a style evolved uh, where they could be seen and heard and and uh, connect with their audiences over fairly large areas. Uh, and thus the stylization of commedia is a little heightened uh, and that's helped by the masks and the individual artists um, were extremely skilled in many different uh, uh, performing styles and through that the the art form uh, evolved.
3: So masks and colorful costumes mm-hmm. and, I guess, body, like exaggerated yeah. body gestures? Body, body
4: body gestures, actually. And real certain stock characters arose through that uh, evolution of that art form. You know, like the miser kind of guys. There's a pantaloni character. There's Arlecchino, who's, who's a, a servant, acrobat kind of guy who's very mischievous. Um, there's the doctor who's very pompous and uh, very good with baffle gab and double talk and th- those are very recognizable characters for the public at the time and, and so they uh, uh, they succeeded and were very popular.
3: So at the event of the Vancouver Public Library you'll be talking about this and demonstrating some? Well, th- not, so, not so much as
4: demonstrating but we certainly will have the masks there and uh, I'll be showing them and uh, talking about them uh, and John will be certainly talking about the history of uh, Moliere and this particular play and our um, ways we're integrating uh, the masks into the production.
3: Oh, wonderful. Well, Don Juan's such an iconic character, Mm -hmm. sort of become a part of our vocabulary. And there's different versions. So you're putting on the Moliere version.
4: As adapted by uh, John Wright.
3: And so what are some of the things that make it different, how John Wright is doing it.
4: Well of course it was originally uh, written in in French and has had many different translations over the years and so I think uh, John's approach was to pare down uh, the more eloquent uh, verbose um, text that exists in the original uh, to get it more streamlined uh, to get to the point uh, more um, more directly uh, and and yet honoring uh, the key elements that uh, that make the, made the play uh, not so successful in its beginning but over time has become a real um, cultural favorite
3: for people. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about Don Juan and what he gets up to in this sort of dark comedy.
4: Well, yeah, it, it's you know it's it's a play that uh, that. Uh, flaunts, because uh, Don Juan has apparently no heart and it's all about the conquest and uh, and his uh, ruthlessness about going about that uh, the damage he does to uh, the people around him and yet uh, uh, raises the, the question of his uh, servant Scanneral of why does Scanneral stay with this apparent person with no redeeming Factors. No, no. He's very elegant, social grace, but he's also skilled swordsman. He's devious. He leaves, of course, the women of his conquest in his wake. Uh, He's not. He doesn't pay his creditors. Uh, You know, he's just, in many ways, not a nice guy. And yet, he is the ultimate seducer. So he is admired by by many. Of course, in the journey of play of the play. He, we see all this and then he meets his ultimate demise by um, going to hell.
3: Mhm. Sort of remorseless, he, he enters is, the flames of hell. Yeah,
5: exactly. <laughs> Sarah Lapsley, laughing at Don Juan, completely brutal. Don Juan will be playing from December 26th to January 26th at the East Van Cultural Center. And the Masks Mischief in Moliere is an event at the Vancouver Public Library Central Branch, Tuesday, December 11th, 7 p.m., free. And you've been listening to Don Juan Act One Overture Live uh, from Musical France on YouTube.
2: Sacrifice.
7: Oh, the music you're listening to is electronic. Only a fool would ignore
2: this. I'd like to demonstrate for you some of the rather more weird kinds of sounds.
5: See how relaxed you're getting?
4: Every Saturday night here at CITR 101.9 FM is More Than Human with me, Gareth Moses. I'll be playing a selection of wonderful electronic music from a strange parallel universe. I hope you can join me between 8 and 9, and uh, do remember
7: to bring your jetpack. I'll see you then.
5: And we're back on CITR 101.9, the arts report for Wednesday, December 5th. And we have a final piece for this evening... You're listening to the soundtrack of Nausicaa, of the Valley of the Wind, which is the first uh, studio Ghibli, uh, sorry, second feature, um, and led to the success of Studio Ghibli. Now, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind is a story of a princess of the Valley of the Wind and she is defending her valley against the toxic jungle or so we think really the true enemy is man and this has been called an eco-fantasy and it is from the director Hayao Miyazaki and more importantly it is part of the Studio Ghibli retrospective at Pacific Cinematheque starting December 7th and I got to get a peek at Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind uh, as well as Castle in the Sky, which was uh, Miyazaki's um, first studio uh, Ghibli feature. Now, these films, uh, and especially Nausicaa, have a, a real sense of wonder, and they value the compassion for others. And I was watching it with my viewing partner, he said that's a really complicated idea for something that can be enjoyed by children and adults and it's actually uh beautifully paced beautifully drawn um distractingly so dubbed um by the by stars such as patrick stewart and shayla Booth. um but if you which is which is quite funny um though i'll listen to anything with patrick stewart in it no matter the context but the films that are going to be seen at pacific cinema Tech during the month of december will be with uh, subtitles while the films shown at the vif center at van city theater will be dubbed so you can make your decision as to what you like All of the films, except for the rare Ghibli uh, on December 17th, The Ocean Waves, one of two rare pieces from the 90s that will be shown, uh, will be 35mm prints. Which one could imagine will be lovely to see such rich animation done, 35mm print. This is one of the main features that, uh, besides the the quality and the interest in this retrospective, has been um, promoted by Pacific Cinematheque. So this made me think, what's so great about 35mm and what's so different about Pacific Cinematheque? Pacific Cinematheque uh, is one of my favorite places to go for movies in the city, and of course that number is dwindling. And they show, as far as my research, that the most 35mm prints, about 90% of their prints are 35mm, with a small selection being digital now, Vancity Theatre and uh, the Ridge Theatre, which is part of the Festival Cinemas family, also show 35mm prints, as far as I know, uh, but it seems that Pacific Cinematheque has uh, the most prints. And this is very important to them, it's part of the history of film. And I got a chance to speak to their projectionist. Now, Al is an uh, alum of UBC Film Society, shout out to them. And he told me a bunch of information about projecting that I never even thought of, let alone knew. For example, we start talking a little bit about specifically how their setup works. They're the only ones to have uh, multiple real systems, as they do. Then he told me a little bit about some of the values of a good projectionist and uh, a few of the incidents that have happened to him throughout his career. And then finally, we talk a little bit about the future of film. Literal film and projecting, and some of the uh, movie and cinema moments that are best in his career. And uh, it's a bit of uh, we've got uh, ten minutes of Al, and I really enjoyed getting to see uh, the projection room. And you will be able to hear the whir of the machines only slightly in the background there, hopefully. And I have to say that I found it quite fascinating. Um, next time that you're seeing a pr- uh, A film, for example, you can keep in mind that different projectionists have different styles. Now, Al says he likes to bring down the lights to about 30%, 50%, then start the film, and then bring down the lights. Because he doesn't want the crowd to panic if anything goes wrong and they're in complete darkness. So this is the type of care that you get when you see a film under What made you interested in joining the Film Society and and specifically getting involved as a a projectionist?
7: I like movies, basically, (laughs) and I was not a cinephile at all when I started. I uh, had only the most cursory film knowledge, Uh, never went to see foreign films or anything like that. Film Society really opened up my eyes to Mm -hmm. cinema in general, and so this has just been an, like expansion and all that so we switch back and forth between two 35mm projectors every 15 to 20 minutes
5: okay. so, and why is that?
7: Um, I don't know anything about this okay <laughs> films arrive in cans on that on those 20 minute reels and theaters used to when they ran film would put them all together on one big reel and that's how they would run it and that way you can run 16 cinemas at once Mm. with one person. Um, Here, you're changing over back and forth, and there's less wear and tear on the films that get built up, and so we have access to prints that are considered archival prints, and we treat them a lot better, and they survive decades as opposed to months or years. Um, The big difference now is if you get a poor digital presentation, it seems no one knows how to fix it, or are unable to fix it during a show. Um, if we have a problem here, we generally know how to deal with it. I've never had to cancel a show, I've never lost a show since coming to the Cinematech. These guys, these 35mm projectors have been around pretty much in their current form for 60 years plus. These
5: uh, guys are a rare breed it seems, yeah. and kind of a do you think that there's going to be any type of resurgence? Or do you think that people like our pro- projection still being produced?
7: Yeah. Uh, well, Film Society is now switched over to DCP. Okay. We train new projectionists here. Usually, I bring somebody in who's been a projectionist at another theater. They usually haven't done this back and forth changeover system. Um, but they pick it up after a day or two. Um, I trained somebody brand new this year.
5: Okay.
7: And she's running shows. So uh, they're still out there. They're still out there, it's it's kind of a challenging thing when you look at it, but the training isn't that difficult if you have somebody who knows how to train, and it is possible to learn, you know, fresh. So, I mean, the skills aren't dying, like, it's not like, you know, mm-hmm. projector knowledge dies with the current generation.
5: Okay, well that's good to know. But can you tell me a little bit about how it works?
7: Um, there's not much animation okay. here. When we switch from one reel to another, uh, we use cue marks in the top right-hand corner. If you've watched Fight Club, you've, s- you've heard those exp- <laughs> I'm um, sure
5: that's where most people know the extent of their knowledge of how film projectors yeah, work. is from Fight Club.
7: The only place <laughs> where I've refer- heard them refer to as Cigarette Burns, other than people who have watched Fight Club. They just... Yeah. I've never heard a projectionist call them Cigarette Burns.
5: Oh, okay. So it, Maybe I just don't m- know
7: projectionists who smoke, though.
5: Oh, fair enough. It is Vancouver.
7: So when you see those cue marks, there's two sets. And when you see the first one, you turn the motor on. And when you see the second one, you hit another button, which flips the sound and the light from one projector to another. But yeah, we are pretty much completely manual here.
5: What would be the quality that makes a good projectionist? Is it vigilance?
7: Definitely vigilance. Uh, definitely care. Films can go out of focus on their own when they hit a splice or something. Um, always paying attention to the presentation, always thinking about it you can move the film image up and down and so it can be easily go out of frame or it cannot be the right framing that the director had in mind so in some ways the projectionist is also determining the composition because often there's film above and below what you see on the screen Oh, okay. and so there is that range where you can quite easily get people's heads cut off or their feet cut off and so you've got to pay attention to everything that's going on there it helps knowing a little bit about shot composition and filmmaking and understanding what you think the filmmaker wants mm-hmm.
5: memories you can share with us of of things either going very wrong or something unique there's always that
7: when for some reason the film jams in the projector and it stops and it will melt within about two to three seconds
5: of the heat of the machine because the
7: heat of the machine if it's not moving it gets too hot and it just melts um used to catch on fire and explode back before 1950 or so and then they invented safety film oh. that doesn't happen anymore uh, I've been in the audience though and watching Roman Holiday at UBC and right at the end it just freezes and you're like what's going on and then you just see Audrey Hepburn's face just boil away and, uh, and then it just goes white and it was a spectacular ending to the film
5: yeah that's kind of poignant
7: yeah <laughs> uh, but there have been situations where I've had the take up on the projector fail and like the pulley snaps and it just won't take up the film anymore at the bottom and having to run from the projector to our rewinder which is like across the room and then onto a reel and so you're running like film through like 15-20 feet you're holding it in your hands all the while the show is running and You know, 15, 20 minutes of film is about 2,000 feet. Wow. So if you're dealing with UBC hour long reels, you got 6,000 feet there that you are trying to keep in balance and going and, you know, but you keep the show going, that's the most important thing.
5: Now you guys have the Studio Ghibli coming up, yep. and that's on 35mm prints. And it's animation, is, is the qualitative difference even more when you have something that's animated? or
7: I think people will notice a difference. Um, there's that organic nature to watching film where no matter how good your machines are, there's a little bit of movement, A um, splice goes through, there's a little bit of a transition. All those things that filmmakers are putting in artificially to their films now, like mm-hmm. scratches and cue marks and pops and whatnot, things that we try and avoid in business mm-hmm. and you see them all the time on video presentations and you're like, that's just being silly. Um, but yeah, there is something to be watching, you know, in the theater, with an audience and getting that, you know, this is what the filmmaker made. Uh, I saw an interview with Tarantino today where he was saying that he wanted to retire because mm-hmm. of digital projection. Wow. He's just, it's just not for him. He just That's not what he signed up for. Well, he's
5: a professional film homager. He is. Right?
7: He, and he owns his own cinema. They're one of the cinemas that are sort of leading the charge to sort of preserve film as a medium. I understand why the studios have gone for DCP and have pushed it so hard. Because before, if you were making Spider-Man 2... You'd be making 4,000 prints, and 3,800 or 3,700 of those prints would be destroyed within six months. Wow. And is that
5: through travel, or what, what happens? Just
7: because you don't need the prints. Oh, okay. And they take up a lot of space, and you're always making the next blockbuster, and you're mm-hmm. always making 3,000 prints of something else. So they make a whole bunch, and then they would destroy it. It was an incredibly wasteful process and industry. Um that's been going on since 1975 mm-hmm. with jaws and star wars and that whole wide release format um i would like to see a return to the old days where you still make the 200 500 prints and then you just keep them mm. and they travel around from the theater to the theater whoever needs them and still use them we'll still play them here um
5: Spider-Man 2, probably not, or...
7: Spider-Man 2, Do you think maybe no. there'll be a
5: splitting kind of of the industry where you have your blockbusters and then you have your kind of your art films? Or is that kind of... Does, does that exist now?
7: It exists now, but you're seeing a lot of art films aren't making 35mm prints either because mm-hmm. it's cheaper to make a DCP. Of course. Uh, we saw that a lot with the film festival this year is a big move to DCP and they're just avoiding film altogether, and it's a shame. Um, but there are lots of movie theaters that can't afford to make the transition to DCP. We're considering adding DCP here as a format, but not getting rid of the 35.
5: Because I'm sure there are plenty of things that come out just on that. On there digital. are plenty
7: of things that are coming out just on DCP more and more every month.
5: And what does DCP stand for?
7: Digital Cinema Package.
5: Okay. And uh, so that com- that does it show up on a DVD? or
7: No, that's a, a hard drive okay. with encryption, and it goes into <laughs> a special server that oh, okay. can take care of the encryption. There's a, a key lock and it also comes with a whole bunch of problems that I'm constantly hearing horror stories about about specifically with things that you're showing once Mm. or twice and that have subtitles and are maybe a different frame rate than what you're used to um all the things that we deal with every day are where the problems exist most for DCP and so I'm very hesitant to get on board with it Mm -hmm. um but it's something we'll have to do eventually. Yeah, just kind of swept
5: sp- up in the tide. Just
7: to stay up with the programming that's out there.
5: Was there a film that stands out for you as a classic uh, film for you in your life?
7: I'd say definitely Cinema Paradiso. When I saw that for the first time, it really sort of opened my eyes to cinema and what it means, what it can mean, uh, especially for like an audience. I thought that was one of the best movies to show, show the effect of film on... People, And, you know, from the projectionists, to the audience, to the town, and what that all means, mm-hmm. and also, like, kind of the depth of the cinema. Because, you know, the cinema gets torn down at the end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. that might be what we're experiencing now.
5: <laughs> I hope not.
7: No, I hope not too. Uh, the tech will go on for a good long while, mm-hmm. and we have a hardcore group of cinephiles that come here Every day they get the annual passes and I see people come to almost every show and they really love this place and that's what makes it special. Fully restored,
0: and includes more than 51 minutes of never before seen footage.
5: that is a trailer for cinema paradiso and al uh as he mentioned he had his own routine uh i contacted alec alex westell at the ubc film sock and uh while he didn't tell me his routine here's what he said that the film society uh still trains projectionists um in the film changeover so if you're interested in seeing that you can check out uh, ubcfilmsociety.com and he says that al was his first teacher as a projectionist and he fondly remembers his attention to detail and grasp on all the workings of the entire theater he cannot speak more highly of him nor his extreme value position as a projectionist at the pacific Cinematheque, where they devoted to showing great films and uh, i was really happy to get a little bit behind the scenes um as a as someone who's studied media quite a bit in my life i have to say that knowing the media specifically the medium that your favorite content is being delivered on is important i think to what the content is and how it should be seen and what that as Al said What that artist truly wanted things to come across to the audience. So, thank you very much to Al for his time. Castles in the Sky, Miyazaki, Takahara, and the Masters of Studio Ghibli will be running from December 9th every weekend until January 3rd. Uh, All Ghibli films present at the Cinematheque will scream in the original Japanese with English subtitles, and Van City Theater will have the English dubbed version. All will be 35 millimeter, including uh, one rare Ghibli only yesterday, but not including a second rare Ghibli, the Ocean Waves. You can check out all the information, thecinematech.ca. And I can't wait to visit on the 9th to see Castle. Uh, Kiki's delivery service. And there's actually a great uh, discussion by Dorothy Woodwind- uh, unwrap the gift of miyazaki's films on the tie e and since i don't have any more time today check out that and listen next week for more reviews wanted to give a couple of shout outs before we end our hour first of all i hope you stay tuned to ubc arts on air it looks to be um, a particularly interesting discussion for me uh katherine gretzinger who is a Radio journalist and voice extraordinaire uh, And nine-year host of CBC's Afternoon Show As well, Um, she is now at the UBC Grad School of Journalism And she will be talking with Ira Nadell. And UBC Arts On Air presents interesting people from the arts world at UBC Tonight I will be at Snag Which we uh, have talked about on the show before with Andrew Young Who visited us uh, uh, about a month ago, uh, maybe more it's a weekly now live painting and art raffle. And tonight we have Allison Woodend, who you may be familiar with. I've seen her stuff before. Uh, she likes to use 3D and multiple media. She has some amazing pieces. So I'll be interested to see whether she'll be painting or crafting. We'll also have uh, Stephanie Toshef, image maker, who uh, has a real uh, cartoon slash graphic quality to her work. Very comic oriented. Uh and then we will also have uh, let's see Mandy Sung who does a uh, kind of this classic female uh beautiful feminine illustration and Ben Knight. And then I'd also just want to let you know that on uh December 8th, I believe they will be doing the live tattooing that we mentioned uh a couple of weeks ago on the Arts Report. Chad from Sanitary Electric Tattoo who is a great community sponsor at CITR will be providing uh, tattoos that live from a previous session where people had talked about which tattoos they would like. Sunday, December 8th, noon to 5pm and it's included with the general admission. There will be light refreshments available. You'll also be able to take your uh, gifts and trinkets in for a touch of gold or the goldification station he uh, Tobias Wong provided uh, quite the scale of luxury and the everyday and he would create everyday objects made of gold and silver and now you can do that as well and then we also have uh, the sixth animal projecting Change Film Festival, Western Canada's Environmental and Social Issue Film Festival this Saturday at December 8th at SFU Woodwards. Um, you can check out projectingchange.ca for the lineup, um, but this day will start with a DIY gardening workshop from Patch, one thirty to 2.30, following by, followed by a screening of Genetic Roulette at 3 o'clock p.m. So uh, please uh, go to projectingchange.ca to RSVP by 12 p.m. on December 7th. And that is it for the arts Report today. I'd like to thank Al from Pacific Cinema Tech, uh, Tobias Wagner from Leo at the Culch, Wayne Sprecht from Access Theatre, talking to us about Mass Sommelier, and of course, our amazing, growing arts team. Emma, Lauren, and Sarah, who joined us today. Next week, we'll hear a little bit from Matthew, and he will be hosting Arts Extra, which I am going to be renaming soon. So send me your suggestions for a standalone show title at uh, Twitter at art, C-I-T-R, arts Report Facebook.com slash ArtsReport. Stay tuned for UBC Arts on Air.
2: become a friend of CITR and get great discounts downtown at
6: 212 Productions Beach Street Records, Blim Dream Apparel, The Fall Tattooing The Kiss Store, Heart and Soul Clothing